So what we're doing is we're picking up part two of this fancy named class, and we're picking up where we left off. My intention is not to go into a detailed review, but this evening is a review of last semester. And Lord willing, don't worry if you're joining us for the first time, Lord willing, we'll be doing uh, another course through, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. So the fancy title is Imago Christi, and what, are we, what we're doing is we're, we are doing a study of the doctrine of humanity. We are approaching God's word, and we are asking the Lord to tell us what his word says about all things human. What does it mean to be a person? What is gender? What is sexuality? What is marriage? What is family? And, and on we can go. So this is the doctrine of humanity or a biblical anthropology. And the reason the class is called Imago Christi is because that's, a, that's the Latin for image of Christ. And in Romans 8, God reveals that his purposes for your life in this world and the next is to conform us or to shape us into the image of Jesus. And so the purpose of this class is to reveal those things so the Lord can help us understand what he's doing in our life. Now, by way of review, here's how the evening goes. I'll go through sections. Tonight is a little bit more lectury than conversation if you've been around uh, last semester, just because I want to move through some material. But I will stop and ask if there's any clarifying questions that you have. If I use some word that you're unfamiliar with, that means that I'm probably not familiar with it, and so you can ask me what I mean. But we can ask some clarifying questions and more, and, and we'll move through this together. But if, uh, if there's a question that comes, is Mandy here? Okay. Okay, well, I'll skip that warning. But if you have a question, just raise your hand. Those of you know who know, all right, so here's the outline of the entire last semester in this. You can see here right up the front, we're gonna, and there's an introduction, and we're going to review that introduction with some changes this evening. And then the outline of the course has been this. Last semester, we explored this claim. What does it mean to be human? To be human is to be created in the image and likeness of God. We are not animals. We did not come from animals. We are not deities. We're not gods. We're not angels. We are humans. We are imago dei. We're image of God. That's what it means to be human. That's the definition. From there, we moved on into this one. To be created in the image of God means to be embodied. And then we moved on to to be created in the image of God is to be gendered. To be created in the image of God includes ethnicity. And then to be created in the image of God includes being commissioned. So that's the outline of the entire thing. Let's, let's zoom in a little bit and just think about what we looked at last time together. So this is in your notes right there on page one. This is simply a super high 30,000 foot view of stuff that we've already gone through. And hopefully, if you weren't here for this, it whets your appetite to want to know more details. And we're going to cover some of this this evening. So I'm going to skip the introduction, go right to number two, because we're going to look at the introduction in detail. When we explored to be human, is to be created in the image and likeness of God, we learned that we are created in the image of God. We explored Genesis 1, 
We learned that the image and likeness of God is covenantal. We explored the effects of sin on the imago dei, image of God in us. And we learned that the gospel of Jesus Christ includes the recreation of us into the imago Christi, image of Christ. And we summarized that. So we spent weeks in this section. Then we moved into here to number three, to be created in the image of God includes being embodied. And we looked at the world's perspective on the body, the meaning of Genesis 2, right? That's the scene where God uh, gathers the soil together, breathes life into Adam, and then from Adam's rib creates Eve. We did some theological reflection on what it means to be an embodied image bearer. We explored the question, what is embodiment for? What are emotions? What is the conscience? We explored the effects of sin and the curse on the whole person. So remember, we use that phrase hardware and software, that we are not just physical material. We're not just um, immaterial. We are material and immaterial. We are hardware and software. And the danger for the Christian is to emphasize one over the other. We talked about stewardship of the body, body modification, case studies, and things like that, and modesty. And here's where we're going to be landing as we move into this, this semester, these next few months. We are smack dab in the middle of what it means to be gendered. So here's some territory that we've already covered. To be created in the image of God includes being gendered. So we explored the world's perspective on gender. We asked the question, what is gender and what is it for? And we examined Genesis 1. We arrived at some conclusions. We asked two questions. Why do the binary, male and female, genders of humanity exist? And the first reason, creation commission. And the second reason, the gospel. Then we zoomed in and we asked, what is a man and what is he for? We had some fun thinking about all the wonderful things the world says about men. We looked at the world's perspectives. And then we looked at scripture's description of man and masculinity we examined the creation and fall accounts of men and women in Genesis 2 and 3. And then we looked at some theological reflections on man, masculinity, and woman, and femininity as his counterpart. And those are some of the things that we looked at um, as summarizing the text of Scripture. Then we moved into what is a woman and what is she for? And much of what a woman is, we actually got in that previous stuff, those previous sections, rather. But we also went to, we talked about the gifted roles that God assigns to men and women in marriage and the church. We examined five additional passages that zoom in on biblical womanhood. And we looked at some concluding thoughts, and then the class ended. So if you're looking for spice, this is the right place to come, because... We're going to be getting into marriage, sexuality, which is going to require us to discuss homosexuality, all things LGBTQ+, and then uh, so-called marriage in that camp and more. And then, Lord willing, we'll move into to be created in the image of God includes ethnicity. And then, if we have time, we'll get into this last one of God uh, commissioning us to be the image of God. So that's, that's a super fast overview and I know that going through it once, for those of you who were here last semester, it was just all right back to your minds, perfect recollection, no sweat, you're welcome for that. But before we jump in, so this evening, 
is it is a reintroduction to the zoomed out purpose of this course. Then we will get into, Lord willing, uh, marriage either next week or the week to follow. But before I jump in, are there any questions up to this point of anything that I've said or rushed through or anything along those lines? I'm not going to go back and explain any of the stuff I taught last semester as a caveat. But any questions? And you can raise your hand and a mic will be brought to you because this is probably being recorded. Catherine, do you want to ask a question? Oh, she, <laughs> yes, last time was recorded. Yeah, it, it was recorded. So you can, you can go through and listen to that. Uh, it's not like listening to a sermon because there's interaction, pauses, and sarcastic remarks. And so you have to kind of wade through those things. I don't, I don't know. Spotify and iTunes. I don't know. I don't know. And I probably wouldn't put them on Apple or Spotify or anything like that. If, if, if they would be, they'd be on our website, but that's a Jeff question. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? All right, so let's, let's jump in. Last night, when I was at city council, it was interesting, depressing, but it was interesting to hear the appeals to authority that people were making regarding the abortion issue and the resolution that the city council foisted on us. Um, and the appeals to authority were based on emotion. And what was really surprising, especially from our city council members, was their decision-making was rooted in stories. I heard the word story so many times, uh, it, was, it was pretty crazy. And the idea that was communicated to the audience was that the city council members had listened to so many stories, and the aggregation of those stories is what led to truth. It wasn't any scientific or medical inquiry about when a human being begins or anything along those lines. It's just, I've heard the stories, whichever one uh, tugged on heartstrings the most, those are the stories that won the day and our council vote, voted as they did. When you ask the question, what does it mean to be human? If you have that conversation, it ultimately drills down. It's a question of authority. Who or what has the right and the authority to define what it is to be human? And see, so we can go out with the microphone and interview people on the street, and you're going to get all manner of people saying uh, different appeals to authority. We, as Christians, our authority is the Bible. And so right here, just this quick summary, we went through this in depth last time, but just by way of reminder, this is what the Bible teaches, teaches us about itself. It's, it's inspired. That means that it is not 
the um, hunches and feelings and speculations of mystic sages. It was God's spirit in men speaking through them so that Peter or John or Luke's or Mark's or Moses's vocabulary was used to write what Moses or Peter wanted, and it's exactly what the spirit wanted. So that means that the Bible itself is revelation. It's not a window that we try to look through to get to some historical events to figure out the revelation there. This itself is the very word of God. And so the Bible is inspired, and therefore, it's trustworthy and true. Your eternal life can be staked on it in every matter of your life. It's authoritative. It is the word of the king. We are his servants and friends, to, and we're saved. And so it's authoritative. It is self-sufficient. And by that I mean, it's as if the Bible is its own universe. It's a closed system. That it is a self-interpreting book. And so where the text is difficult to read or hard to understand, our task is to labor in reading and looking at other parts of Scripture to understand how the pieces fit together with the whole and back to the pieces and back and forth. So the Bible itself is sufficient. We don't need to use social sciences or geological sciences or any other outside source as the interpretive key or lens by which we read the Bible, the Bible itself um, tells us what to, what to know and understand. So that was, um, that's what I mean by sufficient. It is the true story of the world from beginning to end, and it is the word of salvation. The main point of the whole Bible unfolds the whole gospel story centered on the death of Jesus for our sins on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, proving that he was, in fact, God in the flesh and that God accepted his sacrifice and that he is the only Savior in the world. So, as we get into deep controversy, even this evening, contrasting the Bible's ways with the world's ways, there is no shame in us appealing to the Bible as authority. And what was interesting last night, as people were making comments, there were disparaging remarks about separation of church and state and not using the Bible as a basis for giving an explanation. And when I spoke to the council, I told them that I understand that we all come from different worldviews, and many of us who are Christians, our worldview is the Bible. And it has just as much authority to be able to, well, from their perspective. It has all authority to speak into all circumstances, and that's why it is valid. I understand that unbelievers don't believe it, and they think it's foolish and lame or dumb or changed by sneaky Christians. It's not. However, we as Christians know that it's true, and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to do God's work. And He doesn't let it return void. So that's why we would stand on His Word. Uh, any questions before we move forward about just these five quick things the Bible says it, about itself and why, we're, why I'm going to be appealing and why we're going to accept what the Bible teaches, Lord willing, about humanity? Good. Here's something else, all in the setup for understanding, talking about humanity. Scripture forewarns us to be on guard against destructing, destructive and damning heresies. 
Look at 2 Corinthians there in your, in your notes. For we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what's a stronghold? Well, the next verse tells us. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we don't get into fistfights. We use the sword of the word of God in a loving way, but firm way to speak the truth and thereby destroying strongholds, these fortresses built ultimately demonically led and however that demon and people in rebellion, how thinking works, but philosophies, ideologies, and more, our task is to use the Bible. And so one of the things that's beautiful about that, you guys, is we should know apologetics. Apologetics is very helpful. It's helpful to strengthen our faith and more. We should be wise in how we articulate arguments and answer questions and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's the word of God that does the stronghold destroying, not our cleverness or ingenuity. And so praise God that we can rely on his spirit and for Jesus to do, do his work. Next, if you look at Colossians, here's just the section of Colossians. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then here it is, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, probably reference to demonic ideals, of the world and not according to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that's severe affliction to your body, worship of angels, or going on in details about visions and puffed up without reason by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. These, those ideologies, philosophies, empty deceits, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. So there Paul in Colossians, as he did in Corinthians, is, is, is alerting us. See to it. We have a shared responsibility for each other that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceits. So no way to say that is that there's a fancy phrase, plausibility structure. One of the reasons that different ideologies, philosophies, political theories take hold is there's, they're plausible. It's like, that, that could be true. They, they kind of, there's enough stuff in it that might make sense of the world, which would lead somebody to maybe follow that ideology or this ideology. 
So it's not like the devil comes forward in a red unitard with a pitchfork and tries to get you to follow him. You know he's the bad guy. You're not going to follow him. But we're supposed to recognize that, that uh, there are active uh, evil spirits and ideologies that try to take Christians captive and confuse the gospel and more. And if there was ever a day and an age where that's a reality, it's, it's right now. Just open up TikTok. Don't. And then number three there, Timothy, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So again, what we're doing is we're looking about, we're making the argument how the Bible is our rock-solid, sure and steady foundation for arriving at truths of the world. And then I'm showing to us that the Bible itself warns us, all believers of all times, of all places, that there will be belief systems that will seem plausible and they're false. Right? So the, the devil will tell you 99 truths to tell you one lie. And then 98 to tell you two, and then, and then do the math. That's, that's what he does. And so if, um, that's, where, that's, that's what makes deception so deceptive, is it's deceiving. <laughs> you just, you don't see it necessarily on the surface. So that's, we want to be aware of that as we begin to think about things this evening. Jesus forbids us to work against him. He who's not with me is against me, Luke says. Jesus says the evidence of our love and belief is obedience to his word. Right? John 14, we looked at it a couple months ago. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he who does not love me does not keep my commandments. Well, to keep Jesus' commandments is not just a matter of, um, of doing the things that he says. 100% yes. It's also believing the things that he says. 100% yes. So we have to believe what Jesus believes about marriage, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and more. So but just by way of summarizing this section, the Bible self-consciously presents itself to us as the source of all truth to be believed, treasured, and obeyed for all of life in every area of life. And a Christian cannot knowingly, and the key word there is knowingly, a Christian cannot knowingly contradict or work against the truth of Scripture. This implication reaches the area of life, relationships, voting, how we live, move, and have our being in this world. I say knowingly there because the doctrine of sanctification. As Christians, we are growing in Christ-likeness. It's not a perfect linear line growth. There's ups and downs and backs and forths and all these different things. We, none of us will never have perfect knowledge um, until we're brought into glory. But when we are confronted with the truth, and then if we choose to say no, that sets in motion a number of things where it's the responsibility of people around you to, to with tears and grace and humility, to call you to believe what Jesus says in his word. 
And for them, it could be an intellectual issue. They need to understand the Bible better to understand why that's the case. Or usually it's a will and emotional issue. I don't like that, so I don't want to do that. And that usually is what happens in relationships. So anyways, I'm trying to, so there's the setup. The Bible is our basis. Any questions? Um, any questions on that? On Scripture? Clarification? Terms? Ideas? Yeah, Craig, here comes Scott. Under summary, um, number two, where you wrote, uh, a Christian cannot knowingly, <clears throat> um, is that a synonym for presumption in that context? Sure. Yeah, presumption would be is the sin of willfulness, right. the high hand of defiance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, by knowingly, I'm thinking that the person knows that um, sex outside of marriage is sin and then knowingly engages in it unrepentantly, habitually, then they're, they're defying the Lord. Or as we get into marriage and sexuality and gender and more, that'll apply to that as well. Good question. Any other questions, clarifications? Okay, turn up the heat. So I asked earlier, and here it is again, who or what has the authority to define and decide what it is to be human? And the argument that was just made is the Bible does because it's God's word and God invented us and we're his image bearers. But I want to explore from the world's perspective, from my perspective before the Lord saved me when I was late in college, what my perspectives were. And the first one I want to tackle is some will argue, well, the authority to define what it is to be human is actually the academy. It's a fancy way of saying college or university. The scientists and doctors and PhDs, the researchers, the academicians, and more, the academy. And so some of you have heard me the phrase, use the phrase before, the secular seminary. And... What I mean by that is that NAU and all schools self-consciously do not include God and his word as the basis and explanation for all of life. And so what, what's a seminary? A seminary is where you go to study the Bible. Now, praise God... Uh, there's many of you students are over there as lights for Jesus. There's professors there who are lights for Jesus. People working at NEU as lights for Jesus. Praise God for that. We really need to lift up the students and faculty and staff because you guys are in an exceptionally difficult place. But by secular seminary, speaking at a generic level, right, seminaries where you go to learn the Bible, so secular... Secular means attitudes, assumptions, actions that have no religious or spiritual basis. On a biblical worldview, however, there's no such thing as secular. 
since all people are worshipers. Remember in Romans 1, where Paul tells us that all people know the truth of God, but they suppress the truth? So there's actually no such thing as secular. That's a lie, and it's, it's a fast one pulled on you. So there's no such thing as secular. Everybody is a worshiper. Everybody is religious. They just may not call themselves religious, but functionally they are uh, from, our, from our biblical worldview. So therefore, every field of human inquiry is not only theological at its core, but also moral to its core. Every field of study is theological because God is ultimately the creator of those fields. And because it's God is the creator, doing math and architecture and field studies and history and all the other disciplines ought ultimately to yield worship to God. That's, that's their intended purpose. But what has happened since the Enlightenment is that schools and universities have quote-unquote kicked God out and then are now doing uh, all human inquiry in the absence of God himself. What's interesting is uh, below, we're just going to explore nine areas of academic in inquiry. But what's interesting is each of these nine areas are introduced in seed form in the first uh, 11 to 12 chapters of Genesis. This is very fascinating. So any questions on, on the secular seminary comment? And the reminder of our need to pray for believers. Yeah. I'm it's Marcus, little, right? Yes. Cool. Uh, I'm a little confused on so, so with Romans one sixteen, uh, with Romans. Yeah. So everyone is without excuse to with understanding of who God is, and I don't understand how that that can play that sec, you, um, that secularism isn't real, but that isn't a real thing that people do. That's what I'm getting. At. Yeah. So, um, great question. Thank you for asking that clarification. So the notion of secularism is it's not religious. And so people would walk around saying that I'm not religious. When the Bible would say, yes, you are. So, I'm, I'm, so by saying secular, secular was an invention, uh, especially in the French Revolution, to get God out so that human reason would triumph and human inquiry on its own accord would triumph in the investigation of all of life when God himself is the one who reveals all things. So I say secular, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying it tongue-in-cheek by secular seminaries. They, they, is the academy thinks that they're pursuing human reason, all this knowledge without God, and it's, it's actually all worship due to God. So it's just a play on words. Good, good clarification. Anything else before we look at the academic fields of inquiry? So we're, we are reintroducing ourselves to some things that those of you who were here seven months ago, we looked at this. So for example, philosophy. You can go to the philosophy department. It's the study of reality, of being, of human nature, the relationship between mind and matter. And so philosophers ask questions such as these. Does God or gods exist? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Who or what am I? What is consciousness? What is the nature of existence? Do I have a quote, free will? And, and how do you define that? Those are fields called ontology and metaphysics. What is knowledge? And is knowledge even possible? That's the field of epistemology. How should we conduct ourselves as people? That's ethics. How should we govern ourselves? So that's philosophical, it's political philosophy. What is the good life and, and what is death? Those are questions that philosophers ask. Here's the thing. The philosophers ask those questions and seek those answers without the Bible. And yet, on the Christian worldview, only the Bible itself reveals what those mean and what those answers are. Anthropology, for example, is the study of human society and culture and their development, apart from Scripture. Psychology is the study of the human mind and, and, and behavior. Sociology is the study of interpersonal and group dynamics. Excuse me, social change, social stratification. Political science is the study of how law, justice, and government is established and exercised. Legal studies, how law shapes and is shaped by political, economic, and cultural forces. Economics, how individuals and organizations exchange goods. Human environmental geography is the study of human impact and interchange, typically in cities with the environment. And history is the study of past eras and events of humanity. There are certainly more subdisciplines and more pursuits that can be multiplied, but all of those, each of these are introduced and explained in those first 12 chapters of Genesis. And so without having the right roots in the right place, you're going to produce wrong fruit. That's, that's the, the argument that's being made here. And so when people ask, what is a human? What is gender? Can you change your gender? Can, uh, what is sexuality? Is there any morals attached to sexuality? And all of those questions, they're contained in these fields of inquiry and study, as was made clear by some NEU professors last night at the, at the city council. So some will appeal to the academy and scientists, PhDs, philosophers, and more to answer these questions. Any, any questions before we move, on, move away from talking about school? Hold on once. And why you say that just like the Jesus should be the foundations of the university, such as NAU? I have no idea um, the mechanism behind it. Because I, from my perspective, the university should be a, a focus of science. If you want to just like make the Jesus as the basis of the university, and then you should go to the Christian university, not the, the university of just like NAU, this kind of school. But theology and the science is like two dimension, two division. I mean, uh, they are totally different. Well, so even math, so on a, on a biblical worldview, yeah, you don't, you, don't, you don't write Jesus in the Pythagorean theorem or something like that. 
but Jesus is the inventor of math. So I would say that you can, you can pursue mathematics, but ultimately the pursuit of math or science, mechanical engineering, all the engineerings, kinesiology, any of those pursuits ultimately are designed to be vehicles of, of, of worshiping and praising God and saying thank you to him for inventing those things. Yeah, these, these other, these, these social sciences is different from the hard sciences, absolutely. But all of them should be uh, self-consciously giving glory to the Lord. And part of that is because the Bible defines sin as not giving glory to the Lord. And all of our life, whatever we do is supposed to give him glory. So that's, that's why I'm making that argument. But it's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, Brandon. I guess kind of with that, um, I struggle thinking of like, in a, I don't know, taking engineering classes, what, a, like, what practically that looks like. In a, if it was a setting where it wasn't a secular seminary, as you call it, um, is that like, here's these engineering principles and praise God for that. Like, is that? I think, yeah, I think that and more. It's, a, it's as simple as marveling at the divine order of the entire universe, at both the subatomic, atomic level and beyond, the laws of physics, everything. It's called the law of physics and laws require lawgivers and you know, all of those things. And so it's just marveling that um, part of Romans 1, when it, so Romans says that we can study creation and know that God exists, but then we take that truth and suppress it. So someone should be studying math and actually realizing the order in the universe reveals that there's, there's got to be some higher power. Now, math doesn't tell you his name is Jesus and he died on the cross for your sins. But if you know that, then you use math as a vehicle of worship. It's a good, good, great question. Yeah, Genevieve, or, Gen, or whatever you want to do, Scott. I understand. It's like the... Uh, tabernacle, God had to introduce how to make the tabernacle to two men. And they did not know how to do that. And they had to, um, some of those math questions and some of those. That's, that's an excellent example. I mean, so, so much of um, Exodus is architectural plans. Not very exciting to read, no offense to architects. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. No, it's okay, let me keep going. No, no. Okay. Sorry. Trying to find God in what? I was going to say that the earliest scientists during the Enlightenment, Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo, they based, science didn't used to be about the experimental scientific method. It used to be these thought experiments and this Greek way of looking at the world. And these Christians, during coming out of the Middle Ages, they said, God is a God of order. And because of this, we can make predictions. Because of the way God is, they grounded their search of the world and their method in the character of God, and they started looking for science. And it was a revolution that changed our whole world. Yeah, excellent point. And so the point here is just a reminder that if you engage in a conversation with somebody regarding the sanctity of life and you have an abortion conversation, 
or whatever it is, people will be appealing to authority. And so here we're focusing on many people in the world will appeal to academics as the, that's the authority. Whatever the current academic consensus is in whatever field of study, particularly when it comes to the social sciences, whatever that consensus is, that's where I'll base my beliefs or some statistical study or something along, along those lines. Let's move on. The one where people, the other one is culture. The culture. The air we breathe, the environment we're raised in, this is where people typically, the majority of people are going to get their explanations and answers for certain questions. When you just, if you keep asking the question, well, what do you mean by that? And, and so why do you believe that? And, and okay, so why do you believe that? And you begin to drill and drill and drill down. Ultimately, you're going to get to a bedrock where someone's going to have to make an appeal to authority. And if not appealing to uh, academics, then they might appeal to culture. Well, everyone knows you're not supposed to do that. Everyone knows that you, everyone knows that you can't say that word because it's a bad word or something along those lines. The culture. Cult, what, is, what is culture? Culture is the shared intuitions, no, institutions, intuitions, and patterns of life that shape a people, typically at a national, regional, local, political, religious levels in a unique era of human history. Interestingly, the word culture is derived from the Latin meaning cultus, meaning worship. Thus, how we live, move, and have our being as a society is downstream of what we worship as a society. So if you could be, um, if you could be a scientist who would study our culture and look at a large level, if you just listen to the news and scroll through the feeds and you, you see, you get a sense of what people value, what's important. Okay, this is right and this is wrong and this is celebrated and this is not, this is vilified. You begin to get culture. But upstream from that is worship. So something's getting worshipped. So, so in the case of when someone is pro-abortion, something is being worshipped to lead to that conclusion and that culture. So does culture get to dictate what it means to be human? Uh, here's, here's a story for you. The UK's Daily Mail reported in 2015, Paul Walsh, 52, was a husband and father of seven until he realized that he was a six-year-old girl. He left his wife and children and now lives with his, quote, adoptive mommy and daddy, spends time wearing children's clothing, playing dolls, and with the couple's young, with the couple's young grandchildren. Paul actually lived as an eight-year-old until a granddaughter asked if he could be her young, younger sister, so he became six years old. Paul is called Steph, yeah, Stephanie. And in the winter, he, uh, he earns money by plowing snow. He's a big dude. The article is presented in an accepting, compassionate tone that vilifies Paul's previous wife and kids for not accepting him as he is as his authentic self so so does is that is that our north star for establishing humanity 
And clearly that's affecting marriage and gender and sexuality in the notion of age and on down it goes. Or this, this might be a, a possibility to understand. Uh, Vice reported in 2015 that other kins are people too. They just identify as non-human. That was the title of the, of the article. Um, other kins are people who don't think they're people. So the people in this article, there were, I think there were some pictures. Uh, some of the people identify as a dragon, a lion, and a fox. So, so are we free, if we follow culture, to uh, change our creatureliness? C uh, is just about uh, celebrities who uh, let their children decide what gender they want to be. This is interesting. Uh, you might recall, those of you who were here before. So CNN reported, I don't know if you remember this, this was in 2015, huge firestorm, Rachel Dolezal. Uh, it was a firestorm surrounding her for not, uh, not for being head of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP, National Association for Advancements of Colored People, but that Rachel was a white woman who identified as a black woman. And she was heading up the NAACP. So Steve Perry, CNN's education contributor, said Rachel has, quote, cognitive dissonance that is straight, stunning, and self-serving. The NAACP president said Rachel had disrespected the culture. So you, you have this interesting juxtaposition, right? You're not allowed to say that somebody can, um, that it's wrong for someone to change their gender, change their sexuality, but if you change uh, what the world calls race, then you're racist and it's cultural appropriation. So don't touch that because that iron's hot, but the other ones, so there's just no rhyme or reason. So do we take, do we take cues here? You can gauge a culture's values and taboos by their cuss words and profanity. I'm not going to review any this evening. But there's, there are books out there. It's very interesting to see, um, for example, uh, our family, there's, this, there's a thing called Clear Play. How many of you have heard of Clear Play? Cool, Sam, you and me. Okay, all right, there's a couple of us. So Clear Play is a add-on to Google Chrome, and you can put Disney+, Plus, Amazon, different um, on there, and, and when you're going to watch a movie, so you, you put on like a Marvel movie, it will give you a drop-down menu and then itemize um, any sex and nudity, all the violence, and then all the bad language. And then the bad language is further curated into different types of bad language. So there's there's cursing and there's profanity. So there's all these different species of language. And you can curate what's good bad language and bad bad language for you. It's very interesting. <laughs> but when you look at that, there's so, so sociologists will study the evolution of language to see how what words become taboo and what are accepted. And in our lifetimes, just, just take the last... 10, 20, 30 years, and the 
cancel culture and language and more, microaggressions, etc. And yet the thing that needs to be pointed out is that there's so many words we can't say, but you can call a lady a Karen. And if you want to engage in ageism, you can call someone who's a boomer a boomer by saying, okay, boomer, which are all rude and dismissive, uh, implying out of touchness and the young people know more than the boomers. And so it's, it's just fascinating that you, if you call anyone else a name, it's super bad, but you can call white ladies names because a white lady's a Karen for the most part. So there's this hypocrisy in our culture. So does the culture get this, to decide those things? Here's one. This is new. So Disney celebrates, quote, exploring queer stories. This is from uh, a year ago. Corporate president Carrie Burke wants a minimum of 50% characters who are LGBTQIA and racial minorities in all of their, their, product, their films. Production coordinator Alan March has created a tracker to make sure that they are creating enough, quote, gender non-conforming characters, canonical trans characters, canonical bisexual characters. The diversity and inclusion manager Vivian Ware says, company, says the company has eliminated all mentions of ladies, gentlemen, boys, and girls in its theme parks in order to create that, quote, magical moment, close quote, for children who do not identify with traditional gender roles. Disney. That made me want to look up a definition. The definition of grooming, grooming is when someone builds a relationship of trust and emotional connection with a child or a young person so they can manipulate, exploit, or abuse them. That's a secular definition to reuse that word. And what, what did your kids do? What do your kids do? What do my kids do? They dress up as their favorite characters. They want to be these, these characters. And so now, if they want to be the canonical bisexual character or a gender non-conforming character, how many kids and how many parents, how many parents unwittingly will let their kids watch the shows, buy the costumes on Halloween, by the dolls and cool toys, and it's just normalized. Note also how the Marvel Universe is being rebooted and replacing all the male superheroes with female superheroes. The feminist reboot of the last three Star Wars. Both promote the ethos that men created the problems and a new generation of women are the only one who can fix them. But here's the sad irony. The only way the women can fix the men's problems is by becoming what the men themselves do. Drag Queen Story Hour. And then um, here's another one. This is regarding screenshots I took on June 6th, 2020 from the Black Lives Matter website before they changed their public face on the website. And so I have all the screenshots on my phone of that. But you could click down. It was almost like going to a church. What we believe. Click. Here's our doctrinal statement. And so here are six things from their doctrinal statement. 
the Black Lives Matter movement, and I, and I recognize there's all the controversy now of how they just ripped everybody off and stole the money and whatnot. But you think about all the students marching down Beaver Street, holding the signs and all, and all the things that were pay, pay printed on the, the street, hashtag BLM. And, and here's, here's what uh, the, the statement itself, well, of course, of course. But then here's, this, here's, here's what you didn't know that you were becoming a Trojan horse for. That we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender so I put in there for you, that's your, when your physical gender, gender and your identified gender are the same, just so you know. So the BLM movement wants to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks. So they are self-reflexive to dismantle what they'll call later heteronormative beliefs. They want to build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, it's contempt for women, and environments in which men are centered. Uh, so that's free from environments where men are centered. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to do double work. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Well, what's the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. That's called mom, dad, kids. What's their stated aim? Disrupt. And then the other thing is we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Uh, heterosexuality is oppressive and to be overthrown. So, so the, the, which of these get the permission to set the standards for culture to decide, and, and they're all vying for that, and they've all been imbibed by our culture. These are all examples of, of, um, of what, in the absence of a biblical worldview, the gap's got to get filled with those. Any, any questions on these examples of culture filling in the gaps that people would appeal to if they're not appealing to the academy. Any questions? Yeah, Olivia. Um, it's not necessarily a question, but I think it's interesting that from the screenshots, just the ironic statements that are, that you can see like through each one, um, like just right here, you know, we build a space that is free from sexism, but then it's environments that they're avoiding environments in which men are centered and we can be sexist towards men. I mean, it's just ironic throughout each statement how it's completely twisted. Thank you for noticing that. Really good observation. The w one thing about non-truth, say it that way, is it will always be inherently self-contradicting. The biblical worldview is the only true worldview, and that's why um, it has withstood the test of time with all the apologetic uh, criticism forced against it, and, and here it stands, because the truth is coherent, it makes sense. When something is not the truth, it's incoherent, and it will be self-defeating, which, 
Uh, we'll, we'll end with this last piece. This will be, be fun. Miss anything else? Any other questions? Cultural zeitgeist. We're just going to look at this number one and we'll be done this evening. We'll take some questions afterwards. So that zeitgeist, fancy word. Try to figure out how to spell it. I mean, it's right there. But zeitgeist is the fancy way of saying spirit of the age. This cultural moment, something along those lines. So what we're going to do in this section into next week is look at the um, unthought through thoughts that we all have that just shape what it means to be a person living in the West right now. But I want to begin with an example, the secular creed, i.e. my neighbor's lawn sign. I don't know if you've seen this. In this house we believe. How many, how many of you have seen those around town, the in the house, this house we believe signs? Okay. Let's, let's walk through it. I have the word activism there because we're going to discover that the current cultural climate is not only that you have a belief, but that you must become an activist of that belief and an ally to whoever that belief is attached to. The whole silence is violence. So if you weren't in the BLM protest, then you were a source of violence against those who held that system. You, you have to be an activist. You have to do something to protest, to promote whatever the, the view is. So when my neighbors put the in this house we believe sign in their front yard, they're being activists. They're, commu they're, they're telling the community that, well, here's what we believe. So now look at this. It says, the, if you've seen those signs, there, there's such a sad irony here. It begins with, in this house we believe. So the word creed comes from the word credo, and credo means I believe. And as Christians, we have a 2,000-year history of creeds and confessions. Well, specifically, they're early ones. That, so they're very old. And that we as Christians, and many traditions still to this day, when they're in the worship service, will recite these creeds. And they'll, they'll recite, I have it there, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed or the Chalcedonian Definition. They'll recite those because those are tight summaries of what our grandma, grandpas in the faith fought over to make the gospel clear, to summarize what the Bible teaches. They're like super mini specific doctrinal statements. And so we have for 2,000 years as Christians have said, I believe, we believe. And we would gather in the church God's house, and we would say, we believe, we would make a confession, and the sad irony, just like the rainbow flag waving at my other neighbor's house, is that the sign that God flooded the world and killed everybody except for no one his family because of judgment of sin, and he put a rainbow in the sky for the sins that are being celebrated now, now there's this creed in this house we believe. So the first one is Black Lives Matter. This is code for items listed that we already talked about and we're going to get into more later 
It's code for what's called neo-Marxism. We'll talk about that later. It's a biblically true statement. Of course black lives matter. All, and controversially, all life matters because God creates all life. But what happens is anyone who denies with that slow matter, but as a Christian, all life matters, but it's a sinister Trojan horse. And in that horse are a bunch of bad guys. And those bad guys, it smuggles in an activist agenda, and we already saw what that agenda was, as we looked earlier. And so if you don't agree, then, well, it proves that you're racist. It proves, so you're, it's a catch-22. You get stuck. It's a, it's a, it's a um, conceptual trap. But here's the hypocrisy. Black lives matter, except in the womb. And less so for black straight males, as we just heard in those screenshots. Except if a black person embraces a biblical worldview and the cultural hegemony, the majority. We'll talk about that later. To disagree with the statement proves your bias, racism, privilege, and oppression. It's a trap. It's a trap. The next line is love is love. And that's code for celebrating and being an ally of all things LGBTQ+, especially gay marriage, but now currently expanding into throuples, polyamory, open relationships, group marriage, and more. So to disagree with that statement puts you in the bind that you are unloving, hateful, homophobic if you disagree. So again, the question is when we're appealing to what does it mean to be human? Is there such a thing as male and female? Yes. And what is marriage and sexuality and gender? The neighbor puts the sign in, and th these are the belief systems that inform them that when you engage that conversation, you have to be aware of. Women's rights are human's rights. That is code for celebrating and being an advocate for on-demand abortion as a woman's health issue and her reproductive rights. Except no one can define what a woman is. Woman's rights are human's rights, except for the woman in the womb. And if you disagree with that statement, it proves that you're misogynistic, means you hate women, and you're a religious zealot. That's what was brought up last night at the council meeting. The next line says transgender women are women. This is, this is actually a somewhat controversial statement among uh, progressive liberals. So it's code for one's felt identity as the basis of truth and reality, not one's physical gender, even when it comes to sports and bathrooms for, quote, male-bodied people. Except TERFs. TERFs are trans-exclusionary radical feminists, right? So the, the woman who wrote Harry Potter and others. Um, uh, women who are on some fringes of the feminist movement see through the trans women, which means that it's a guy who is saying that he is a woman, and TERFs say that is just guys sneaking into our feminist agenda and doing what guys do, take over everything. There's actually an internal battle among uh, progressive leftists on this. But if you disagree that transgender women are women, it proves that you're transphobic. 
Another good one, science is real. That's code that anyone who rejects mainstream narratives on masks, vaccines, and especially climate change. That's what that means. Science is real. You play the science card. Science is real, except when it comes to basic biology. And science is real, except when it comes to gender. And science is real, except when it comes to babies in the womb. And science is real, except when science challenges the dominant narrative. And to disagree that science is real proves that you really are a conspiracy theorist, ignorant, deplorable, and religious zealot. Right? So it's seeing, it's seeing through the beautiful language. Think about that statement. Love is love. It just it feels good to say it. Who doesn't like the word love? Right? And science is real. Well, what the current hypotheses and tests are revealing not majority rule and lastly all are welcome races ethnicities religions countries of origin gender identity sexual orientations abilities disabilities spoken languages ages unless you love god guns country Then you're a right-wing extremist, racist, and the new boogeyman, Christian nationalist. A very undefined word that has, is being defined by people who shouldn't define it uh, as an epithet. Especially a white Christian male. So, so I told you it'd be a little bit spicy. And, 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 and we're, we're laying forward this... Um, battle lines, the let no one take you captive by empty philosophies and more. We're setting this up to say that, okay, as Christians, we believe the Bible. And the world and people who don't believe the Bible have to appeal to something else. And for the quote-unquote secularist or atheist or new ager or whoever, there's going to be appeals to the academy or to culture and so these were examples to say well here's where culture was a few years ago right and that's where disney was last year and so this is where things are going and so when we engage in this conversation we're self-consciously looking at scripture and we are on purpose contrasting what the bible says with this current cultural moment that's where we're going in the class we're six minutes over please feel free to leave if you have to uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then I will stay here to answer questions as long as you want until my kids are out of youth group, then I'm going to go home. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We, we hear all of these things, and frankly, it's overwhelming. It's saddening. But Lord, we know that your spirit at different times and in different places has sent revival where the lost were saved in great numbers and lukewarm Christians were made on fire for you. Jesus, we, we want to be bold and courageous with our love for you, our love for our lost neighbors, and that we would not, well, Lord, that we would speak the truth and love to them and rebuke as necessary and to be, um, to, to be faithful representatives, uh, representatives of you, Jesus, but to also be,
wise as serpent and the innocent of doves as we walk into these conversations. So outfit us and equip us with your word these coming weeks, we pray in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. All right.